I saw a great mountain, the color of iron, and enthroned on it, the one of such great glory that it blinded my sight. On each side of him there extended a soft shadow, like a wing of wondrous breadth and length. Before him, at the foot of the mountain, stood an image full of eyes on all sides, in which, because of those eyes, I could discern no human form. In front of this image stood another, a child wearing a tunic of subdued color but white shoes, upon whose head such glory descended from the one enthroned upon the mountain that I could not look at its face. But from the one who sat enthroned upon that mountain, many living sparks sprang forth, which flew very sweetly around the images. Also, I perceived in this mountain many little windows, in which appeared human heads, some of subdued colors and some white. And behold, he who was enthroned upon that mountain cried out in a strong, loud voice, saying, O human who are fragile dust of the earth and ashes of ashes, cry out and speak of the origin of pure salvation until those people are instructed who, though they see the inmost contents of the scriptures, do not wish to tell them or preach them because they are lukewarm and sluggish in serving God's justice. Unlock for them the enclosure of mysteries that they, timid as they are, conceal in a hidden and fruitless field. Burst forth into a fountain of abundance and overflow with mystical knowledge, until they who now think you contemptible because of Eve's transgression are stirred up by the flood of your irrigation. For you have received your profound insight not from humans, but from the lofty and tremendous judge on high, where his calmness will shine strongly with glorious light among the shining ones. Arise, therefore, cry out, and tell what is shown to you by the strong power of God's help. For he who rules every creature in might and kindness floods those who fear him and serve him in sweet love and humility with the glory of heavenly enlightenment, and leads those who persevere in the way of justice to the joys of the eternal vision. Vision 1, Scivias, by Hildegard of Bingen. This is Our Numinous Nature, and I'm your host, Philippe. We'll be hearing the profound stories of people with a deep connection to the natural world, from herbalists to hunters, wildlife rehabilitators to trappers, artists to homesteaders. The list goes on. My hope is to thread a needle that weaves together the many nature-related passions through stories of reverence. In nature, I've found meaning, a richness for life that grows with each new day. Maybe you feel the same. Or maybe you long to. What you heard there was the music and text translated from Latin of a mystical abbess from 850-some years ago named Hildegard von Bingen. You're going to learn a lot more about Von Bingen, and I'm going to read a bunch about Von Bingen. But before that, I want to say a huge thank you to Dr. Jacqueline horner Kiwiatek. Hopefully I'm pronouncing your name right. She is the singer 
and the leader of a group of singers named Modern Medieval Voices. They've got an album coming out later this year, and you can check them out at modernmedieval.org. And uh, Jacqueline was so gracious to let me use her music, her renditions of Hildegard on today's podcast. So you heard that in the intro, and you're going to hear one more of Modern Medieval's um, renditions um, when I read some more of Hildegard's texts. Okay, so today's podcast guest is Rebecca Bayer of Blood and Spicebush. She is a folk herbalist, a hedgecraft practitioner, a forager, an occult author, and a tattoo artist, though we did not talk much about the tattooing. I'm sure many of you listening already know her um, by Blood and Spicebush. You can find her on Instagram as Blood and Spicebush and bloodandspicebush.com, where you can sign up for classes. You can read from her blog, which gets all into the wonderful world of... Um, history and plants, the occult and plants, folklore, plant lore. I love it. And she has just come out with a new book. I think this is her first legitimate book and she has a bunch more coming. It's put out by a massive uh, Simon & Schuster, I believe. So a massive publisher, huge congratulations. I have not yet had a chance to look at the book, but it is called Wild Witchcraft, Folk Herbalism, Garden Magic, and Foraging for Spells, Rituals, and Remedies. You can find that anywhere books are available, any major bookstore, I'm sure. So this was the third stop on my Asheville trip in early June. The first episode was with Jim McDowell. He's an artist and a potter, and he's heavily inspired by the experiences of his enslaved ancestors and channeling them in his art. Such an awesome episode. The next one was with Sonny Ledford, who is a Cherokee cultural ambassador um, on the Koala Boundary in Cherokee, North Carolina. That was a really potent episode where you got to kind of see into the world of, of the Cherokees, you know, from a few hundred years ago. Today's episode with Rebecca, so, 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 so fun. I just love this one. This was just such a fun and free-flowing conversation. Uh, I'm so into the history, how humans have interacted with plants. I love all the folklore. I love all the darker witchcraft stuff. And Rebecca, um, towards the end of the episode, tells this paranormal story that is, I got to say, probably one of the best on this entire podcast, one of the best paranormal stories. It was chilling. I mean, I had my hair standing up. It was very, very spooky. After this episode, we have one more on this Asheville trip, and that is with Lori Burra. And that one, um, she's a gardener, herbalist, all those things. But that was, I said it in the last episode, but that was almost like a psychedelic level conversation. It is all about um, experiences and visions of reincarnation, of um past lives, very vivid, very, very, very vivid past life experiences and um, very clear, almost mystical um, intuitions about the purpose of existence and the the trajectory for humans. It was a stunning conversation. So uh, you have that to look forward to in another two weeks. But for today, here we are with Blood and Spice Bush. Love this episode. And um, you're going to learn all about Hildegard von Bingen, this mystical abbess from the 1100s. Um, 
Rebecca will tell you about her, and I'm going to do a little reading about her. But before that, let me say thank you to all of everyone on Patreon. So I do not have advertising on this podcast, but you will have to listen to a few moments about Patreon. So I created a Patreon account. You can find it at patreon.com forward slash our numinous nature. A handful of you are already contributing and I thank you so highly. You're the reason I can go and do a trip for a few days, all the gas money, et cetera, camping out and record these incredible, inspiring people. So I'd like to give a shout out to Jess Paget, Rachel Hawkshaw, On Stanley of Pyramid in Waynesboro, Virginia, Franklin Renshaw, James Mann, Michelle Alderson, Ryan Goeckner, Tyler Lively, Waterlight, and Martin Gendron. So thank you all so much. You're making this possible. Okay, well, let's, I thought the two readings that would be super interesting um, from Hildegard, uh, one is going to be, she wrote, as you'll hear from Rebecca, she wrote extensively about the healing properties of plants. So it's medicine from the past is so fascinating. Like what did people think almost a thousand years ago regarding medicine? I mean, that is endlessly fascinating. So I'm going to read one excerpt about um, Hildegard's uh, thoughts on the healing of Mandrake. And it's really folky and wonderful. When I read or learn about old medicine, the, the things that are so fascinating to me are one, what have we forgotten? Oftentimes with herbal medicine, Native Americans were healing themselves with the medicinal properties of plants that have long been forgotten in modern times. But then they're just the totally strange, like you're going to hear with Hildegard and the Mandrake. And it's so strange that you wonder, what are we doing with medicine today that is totally normal, that everybody believes that in 200 years, 800 years, 1,000 years, from now will be looked at in equal horror, just like how there used to be trepanning, where they would drill a hole in the top of your head to let like the bad spirits out, the pressure out. There's things that we are just obviously how science works and how history works. There are things we are doing today, which will be looked back in medical history with equal horror. After that, I'm going to read another one of her visions, which was uh, an apocalyptic vision. And I found this vision, though obviously it's in very allegorical and mythological language, I found her description of these five beasts to very much bring, um, bring to mind kind of where we are on in society and on this timeline, like the anger of the masses, the political corruption, the um, kind of intense vices in society, whether that's these kind of underground pedophilia or just extreme intoxication, just how far we've come from God in many ways. So I'm really excited to read these two excerpts and then get into this totally stimulating and fun episode. This first reading is from Hildegard von Bingen's Physikia, the complete English translation of her classic work on health and healing. The second reading is from the same source as the intro. It is Hildegard of Bingen, 
Scivias. Both of these obviously written 800 plus years ago. Mandrake, Mandragora, is hot and a little bit watery. It grew from the same earth which formed Adam and resembles the human a bit. Because of its similarity to the human, the influence of the devil appears in it and stays with it more than with other plants. Thus, a person's good or bad desires are accomplished by means of it, just as happened formerly with the idols he made. When Mandrake is dug from the earth, it should be placed in a spring immediately, for a day and a night, so that every evil and contrary humor is expelled from it, and it has no more power for magic and phantasms. But if it is pulled from the earth and set aside with earth sticking to it and not cleansed in the spring water, it is harmful for many injurious acts of magic and for delusions, just as many evils were at one time done with idols. If a man, through magic or the burning heat of his body, suffers from lewdness, he should take a root of female mandrake, which has been cleansed as mentioned. He should tie it between his chest and belly button for three days and three nights. Later, he should divide it into two parts and should keep one part tied over each side of his groin for three days and three nights. Also, he should pulverize the left hand of this same image and add a bit of camphor to this powder. Eating it will cure him. If a woman suffers the same ardor in her body, she should put a piece of male mandrake root between her breast and belly button and follow the same procedure as described above. But she should pulverize the right hand of it and add a bit of camphor. After eating it, her ardor will be extinguished. Whoever suffers some infirmity in the head should eat from the top of this plant in whatever way he wishes. If he suffers in his neck, he should eat from its neck. If in the back, from its back. If in the arm, from its arm. If in the hand, from its hand. If in the knee, from its knee. If in the foot, he should eat from its foot. In whatever part he is ailing, he should eat from the similar part of this image, and he will be better. The male form of this plant is stronger as medicine than the female, since a man is stronger than a woman. And if someone is always sad and always in hardship so that he has pain and weakness constantly in his heart, he should take mandrake. This should have been pulled from the ground and placed in the spring for a day and a night. Having taken it from the spring, he should place it near himself in his bed so that the plant gets hot from his perspiration. Then he should say, God, you made the human being from the mud of the earth without pain. Now I place next to me this earth, which has never been stepped on, so even my earth may feel that peace, just as you created it. If you do not have mandrake, take the first root mass which sprouts from the beech tree. Happily, it has the same quality for this undertaking. You should pull it out entirely, without breaking the shoots, and carry the whole thing from the tree. Place it next to you in your bed, so that the roots get hot from you, and receive the perspiration from your body. Say the same words again over them. You will receive happiness, and in your heart will sense recovery. Likewise, you can do the same thing with cedar or aspen, and it will make you happy. Vision 11 The Last Days and the Fall of the Antichrist 
Then I looked to the north, and behold, five beasts stood there. One was like a dog, fiery but not burning. Another was like a yellow lion. Another was like a pale horse. Another like a black pig. And the last like a gray wolf. And they were facing the west. And in the west, before those beasts, a hill with five peaks appeared. And from the mouth of each beast, one rope stretched to one of the peaks of the hill. All the ropes were black, except the one that came from the mouth of the wolf, which was partly black and partly white. And lo, in the east, I saw again the youth whom I had first seen on the corner of the wall of the building where the shining and stone parts came together, clad in a purple tunic. I now saw him on the same corner, but now I could see him from the waist down. And from the waist down to the place that denotes the male, he glowed like the dawn, and there a harp was lying with its strings across his body. And from there to the width of two fingers above his heel, he was in shadow, but from there down to the bottom of the feet, he was whiter than milk. And I saw again the figure of a woman who I had previously seen in front of the altar that stands before the eyes of God. She stood in the same place, but now I saw her from the waist down, and from her waist to the place that denotes the female, she had various scaly blemishes, and in that latter place was a black and monstrous head. It had fiery eyes and ears like an ass's, and nostrils and mouth like a lion's. It opened wide its jowls and terribly clashed its horrible iron-colored teeth. And from this head down to her knees, the figure was white and red, as if bruised by many beatings, and from her knees to her tendons, where they joined her heels, which appeared white, she was covered with blood. And behold, that monstrous head moved from its place with such a great shock that the figure of the woman was shaken through all her limbs, and a great mass of excrement adhered to the head, and it raised itself up upon a mountain and tried to ascend the height of heaven. And behold, there came suddenly a thunderbolt, which struck that head with such great force that it fell from the mountain and yielded up its spirit in death, and a reeking cloud enveloped the whole mountain, which wrapped the head in such filth that the people who stood by were thrown into the greatest terror, and that cloud remained around the mountain for a while longer. The people who stood there, perceiving this, were shaken with great fear and said to one another, Alas, alas, what is this? What do you think this was? Alas, wretches we are! Who will help us, and who will deliver us? For we know not how we were deceived. O Almighty God, have mercy on us. Let us return, let us return, let us hasten to the covenant of Christ's gospel. For ah, 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 we have been bitterly deceived. And lo, the feet of the figure of the woman glowed white, shining with a splendor greater than the sun's. And I heard a voice from the heavens saying to me, The five ferocious epochs of temporal rule. All things that are on earth hasten to their end, and the world droops towards its end, oppressed by the weakening of its forces and its many tribulations and calamities. But the bride of my son, very troubled for her children, both by the forerunners of the son of perdition and by the destroyer himself, will never be crushed, no matter how much they attack her. But at the end of time, she will rise up stronger than ever and become more beautiful and more glorious, so she will move sweetly and delightfully to the embraces of her beloved. And this is mystically signified by the vision you are seeing. 
For you look to the north, and behold, five beasts stand there. These are the five ferocious epochs of temporal rule, brought about by the desires of the flesh, from which the taint of sin is never absent, and they savagely rage against each other. The fiery dog. One is like a dog, fiery but not burning. For that era will produce people with a biting temperament, who seem fiery in their own estimation, but do not burn with the justice of God. The yellow lion. Another is like a yellow lion. For this era will endure martial people, who instigate many wars, but do not think of the righteousness of God in them. For those kingdoms will begin to weaken entire, as the yellow color shows. The pale horse. Another is like a pale horse, for those times will produce people who drown themselves in sin and in their licentious and swift-moving pleasures neglect all virtuous activities. And then these kingdoms will lose their ruddy strength and grow pale with the fear of ruin, and their hearts will be broken. The black pig. And another is like a black pig, for this epoch will have leaders who blacken themselves with misery and wallow in the mud of impurity. They will infringe the divine law by fornication and other like devils, and will plot to diverge from the holiness of God's commands. The Gray Wolf And the last is like a gray wolf. For those times will have people who plunder each other, robbing the powerful and the fortunate, and in these conflicts they will show themselves to be neither black nor white, but gray in their cunning, and they will divide and conquer the rulers of those realms. And then the time will come, when many will be ensnared, and the error of errors will rise from hell to heaven. And then the children of light will be pressed into the winepress of martyrdom. And they will not deny the Son of God, but reject the Son of Perdition, who tries to do his will with the devil's arts. And these beasts are facing the west, for these fleeting times will vanish with the setting sun, for people rise and set like the sun, and some are born, and some die. We are coming to you from a creek, the Shelton Laurel Branch, off of Big Laurel River in Shelton Laurel, Marshall, North Carolina. And the smoke, well, it's not the Smoky Mountains. It's the Pisgah National Forest in western North Carolina. It's insanely beautiful here. Isn't it crazy? Yes. And like I was saying, I'm glad that you're far enough from Asheville that it doesn't have the suburban country feel. It feels <laughs> no. like the real deal. The <laughs> real the real, the real deal. I thought it'd be fun to begin with. Um, you know, my girlfriend has always used um, your Instagram and blog and myself as well as a resource Aww. for learning about plants. <laughs> Thank you. Um, well, and one thing that has struck me right off the bat is the wonderful name of your brand or whatever the hell you want to call it. <laughs> my brand. <laughs> blood and Spice Bush. So Blood and Spice Bush. Beautiful. What was the inspiration for that name? That's a good question. I don't really know. I started the blog in 2014 when I gave up on my land project out here, which I removed to last year. And my land that I live on, or the land that I steward, is called Lindera, which is the Latin name for spice bush. And in Appalachian folk medicine, which is one of the things I teach, um, spice bush cleans the blood. 
Mm. And to me, blood and spice bush is kind of like the um, guts and bones of Appalachian folk practice. And I don't know. I think it just had a ring, a, a spooky boy like ring to it. And I like kind of like the darker side of things as, as we've kind of been joking around as we've been getting to know each other. And I think that's kind of what drew me to that name. Yeah, I definitely like the darker side of the plant and herbal world for damn sure. <laughs> me too. Um, well, very neat. Um, so I guess here's a little bit of an intro. So when I was first, um, so I just started drawing plants basically because my mom was a student of herbalism. One thing led to another and I was hired by Susan Leopold of United Plant Savers. That really opened up my career path and I was being hired by all of these people in the herbal world, um, apothecaries. Um, when I was drawing the plants at that point in my life, I was just um, just learning about it. And I w didn't necessarily feel all that connected to it. Yeah, The circles around me, my mother, um, her mentors, some of the um, conferences we went to, like there's one right now going on, Black Mountain. Yeah, Black Mountain. Medicines from the Earth. Medicines from the Earth. I usually go to that one, but not yeah, this so year. That one's a little, is like very on the academic side. Yeah, and I love like, that one. Yeah, very much about the 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 medicine of plants. So that hasn't really taken hold on my interests, but over like the past year, history and folklore <laughs> with plants has like completely like turned on a huge light inside of me where now when I look at plants, I am like, there is an in, there's hundreds, thousands or more years of history in every one of these plants. And that is what has like, um, turned things on for me in the plant world. Like now I find the plants so fascinating. I want to draw them and I think about them. So that's why I'm so excited <clears> to talk <throat> with you today because you're very much interested in plant history, plant folklore. Yeah, that's my main interest, the stories of plants. And and not just in Appalachia, but back in Europe, yeah. medieval, et cetera. <laughs> yes. Is there... Um, I guess where can we go from there? Is there a particular plant that you that you've been exploring the history of right now? Oh wow. One I feel like I'm sure you know broadleaf plantain, Platago major, right? I know plantain. I yeah. might not know that one. Yeah, that's just that regular the plantain that you probably see everywhere with the big round leaf with mm -hmm. those parallel veins. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Plantago major. And it's a plant from Europe, you know, people called it Englishman's foot because it followed um, it loves to grow in compacted soil and would come up behind settlers' wagons and stuff and colonists areas where they had really driven horses over the soil a lot. Mm. And there are native species of plantain here as well. Um, but interestingly enough, I found out that I think plants are the best way to bring connection between people culturally because this is a European plant and it's, it's sacred. It is actually in the nine herbs charm which is an Anglo-Saxon magical spell that was written down in the ninth century that you, uh, you say over these herbs, these nine different herbs to make an ointment that cures wounds and, um, carbuncles and like pustules and stuff. What's a carbuncle? Like a boil? Yeah. It's mm. a gnarly old term for a boil. And so, but you have to like also say this poem into the patient's mouth, which I think is funny. Into and their mouth? Both their ears. Can you imagine just so like So you put lips, to, like you're like, you're just like yeah, an just, inch from their mouth? Yeah, just like yelling. Spreading disease? Magical words into, <laughs> straight into their mouth. Yeah, I just, I feel like that is hilarious. I'm like, ancestors, what were y'all doing? But I think about plantain in those contexts. And then I learned that plantain also has a really important history in black communities in the South. And no one ever talks about that. 
um, there's this enslaved person that lived in South Carolina in the 1700s named Caesar. And there's an article, it's on my website if you look up my plantain article. It's called Caesar's Cure for Poison. He boiled plantain roots and mixed them with some other herbs. And he like successfully cured many people of uh, really serious rattlesnake bites. And he was so good at it, he was freed from slavery and given 100 pounds of gold if he would share his remedy. And they wrote an article about it. You can see it in the South Carolina Gazette, a gazetteer or something. And I found a facsimile of the actual newspaper. And I'm just like, these are the stories that interest me. Because when I teach plantain, you know, we talk about it. It was a sacred plant in Europe and in America. You know, white colonists brought it here and they spread it around. And like, you know, indigenous folks used it as medicine for sure. But um, the, the black story of that plant is not told. And to me the place where all of our different like cultural lineages meet and like it's so perfectly illustrated through the stories of plants. That is awesome. And right. just to be clear for my own edification, yeah. there is a separate plant called rattlesnake plantain. Yeah. That's okay, a that's type different. of orchid. Mm-hmm. Okay. I think yeah. I know that one as well. I think I've been seeing it in the woods and looking at your Instagram, I was like, yeah. ah, that's what the name is. So, yeah. but to the normal plantain, how are people in the foraging and herbal world, if someone's listening to a podcast who doesn't do that stuff, say they're a hunter, how is plantain kind of seen um, in 2022? Like what's the, what, yeah. how do we see it as a forager or herbalist? Well, it's like the Band-Aid plant, you know? People okay. see plantain and you chew it up and you put it on bee stings. I feel like that's the number one. The root or the leaf? The leaf okay. of thing that people do with it. But that's just one of like a million uses. And I actually eat it a lot. I eat it almost every day. The leaf or the uh, root? The leaf, yeah. I, I, have, I haven't, I've never yeah. messed with plantain. Yeah, it's great. It's a really easy to identify plant because mm-hmm. of those. If you pull the leaf off, it has little stringies that hang out. Mm. Those little ribs that you see. Mm. As people used to call it ribwort plantain because it mm. has the the line the parallel veins. But most leaves they have a central midrib and their veins come out of the center like a little tree. But these ones don't. All of them go up straight from the bottom, and there there's no like teeth or anything around the margin, and they grow in a little rosette, a little circle. And people, sometimes there's a lot of snake associations with that plant because it's an anti-poison plant. And it has been forever, I think, Mm. by people. But I love it just cooked up like a green. It's really delicious. And it's Mm. low in oxalates. So if you're prone to kidney stone, it's actually one of the few greens that's lower in oxalates because most Walgreens are very high in them. So Mm. it's just, you know, you could write a whole book on plantain. I haven't heard that term. Walgreen? Uh, It's a, what? Did you say a Walgreen? (laughs) No. Um, It's a... a wild green, wild green. that's you low in oxalates. I'm okay. sorry, my my voice probably sounds funny because I have allergies right now. Um, okay, so I know this is a topic you're interested in, yeah. have been interested in, and I'm only just over the past six months or so becoming interested in. That's right. Um, so, so, so I wonder. So I know you're very much interested in your own ancestry and how that connects to plants and whatnot. Yeah. Right. So I wonder. Well, first, let's hear it. How how has your exploration of your own ancestry connected into plants and whatnot? Well, I did an ancestry test, and I was pretty shocked because, well, lo and behold, I'm 100% white. Not a surprise. But I had no idea I was Eastern European. I'm 7% Polish. Mm. I've never been told that we have any Eastern an- ancestry. Mm. And so that was kind of cool to think you know who you are and remember that you don't. You're always finding new things. And genetics mm. are so weird and nonlinear. And kind of magical, I think. Mm. Um, 
I'm mostly Irish and I really am interested in Ireland and Irish history. I have a lot of friends who are herbalists in Ireland and primitive skills practitioners who are really cool. And it's just such a like the pagan past is still detectable there. Mm. And I really love that. So I've been getting a lot of books on Irish ethnobotany, the history of how people have used plants in Ireland. And I I would like to learn Irish as a language, Mm. as Gaelic. And um, yeah, I feel excited about it because I, Mm. I don't have strong family ties and I'd really like to feel some type of connection Mm. to some ancestors. So So, yeah, yeah. I've been feeling very much the same way. And I Mm. wonder if, um, I wonder, you know, it's like sometimes, I mean, I think the right word, I don't know if envy is the right word, but it's like sometimes I long Mm. to feel pure, you know? And it's like when I interviewed uh, the Nanticoke man on the Eastern shore, I feel like he was so Nanticoke. I mean, he did he did have um, European ancestors for sure, but he <clears throat> just like, I don't know, something about that. Or, or like, um, you know, I just interviewed a Cherokee guy. I feel like they're, they're so connected to like who their tribe was. And I think you even wrote it. Um, you wrote about like, as the world becomes more globalized, I think people are gonna feel a longing to know their tribe. And, it, it, you know, I think it's interesting you know, we hear how negative tribalism is, but I think there's the positive element of tribal, of being tribal. It's just knowing like, what are your ceremonies? You know, a longing to feel a connection to place and to ceremony and to animals and plants and Mm -hmm. towards ritual. Like, so I very much feel like I'm beginning that kind of like questioning as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of why I wrote my book, you know, like, I think for me, knowing your own ancestors, I agree with what you said. Like tribalism can be, we can't do anything halfway apparently. Like if you think your tribe is the best and everyone else's tribes are the worst, of course, <laughs> tribalism. I know exactly. That's bad. That leads to like white supremacists and stuff. And, but I think if you know about your own ancestors and you're like um, working towards like reconnecting with the plants of your ancestors and things, like I think that makes you a better ally to marginalized people's connecting with their own ancestors because you're not trying to mine their culture for your own longing. Mm. You have your own ancestors. And like that doesn't, because we live in a globalized world, there's cultural exchange too. But exchange is different than theft, right? Because like if you are from a marginalized culture and I'm like, I like your cool outfit that you wear and I'm from a dominant culture that's historically subjugated your culture. If I just take that costume and wear it, it means something different than Mm. if you are to like practice Christianity, you know what I mean? Because mm. like, there's different power at play. Mm. And so to me, I always ask, like, because people are like, oh, Becky, you, you're just saying that we can't share anything and that you got to stay in your land. I'm like, that's not what I'm saying at all. What I'm saying is we live in an age where people can pick and choose almost anything they want at any time, but your choices have meaning. And, you know, you support or you harm with your choices. Mm. And wouldn't it be cool to, like, mutually support each other in discovering meaningful connection with our ancestry and with the places we live when possible because some of us are adopted or like don't have ancestral connection too and that's also a thing so it's like a lot of or nuance just, there, or even right? yeah very nuanced because yeah and <clears throat> or maybe just to like fully understand what you're engaged in so that you can really love and respect you know like when i learned from this cherokee man now i see the world a little bit differently now now when i realize um I may be interested in something that's Cherokee. I like, am so like thankful 
and um, in love with their culture. Like, I'm like, man, that is just, that is so cool. You know, yeah. I think it, uh, creating um, appreciation for the yeah. differences of all these cultures. Yeah. And so if I'm supposedly barbecue comes from slave culture. Yeah. So um, next time I eat barbecue, I'm like, wow, like, thank you to this culture for creating this incredible thing. This is incredible and unique and I get to enjoy it. But I know that there's this amazing story behind everything. Exactly. And plants create a connection point there. Like you just mentioned, I was talking to one of my friends from the Eastern Band Cherokee Nation about cedar mm. and like they burn cedar. White sage is a Western plant, right? So right. some people are like, oh, all Native Americans burn white sage. Right, That's right. not true. It's, right. a, it's a bioregional plant, right? Well, cedar was used a lot um, to cleanse spaces and to rid places of evil and, and not like a one size fits all smoke practice, but very similarly. And in Germany, pre-Christian Germanic peoples burnt cedar to cleanse spaces and rid spaces mm. of disease and illness. And we were talking about that and we we're like, isn't it cool that mm-hmm. both of our ancestors independently mm-hmm. decided that cedar was this plant or like heard cedar say, Hey guys, I'm really good at getting rid of evil, like whatever way you believe that mm. to be. And they uh, syncretically use the plant for the same thing. Mm. I it must smell find amazing. That, it does smell great. I find that all the time in my research, like, so many people use plants and work with plants in the same ways that connect us, even though we're different mm. culturally, mm-hmm. that rather than make us more different. And I think that's really special too. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm very yeah. much into Carl Jung and, and he has coined a concept, the uh, collective unconscious. So it's like- I love that concept. Yeah. So many mythologies repeat themselves um, across the world from vast people who had no trade connections or anything. So oh, yeah. very fascinating. But- to cedar oil, I just learned. So as we're talking about ancestors and cedar is, um, so I've been very interested in the Gauls who were inland yes, Celts. Yes, the Gaulish people. Yes. Yeah, they're amazing. So they were the Celts of France and Belgium. Like yes. half my family still, still lives in Belgium. So I think there's a good chance. My dad did, who lives in England, my dad's side of the family is European mutt. A lot of English, French, Spanish, but he did his ancestry and it says Northern France. So I'm like, man, I think there's a good chance on all sides of my family that we might have been these Gauls. And one thing I learned about them, they were, they're headhunters. Yeah, they okay. were like warriors. Cra- yes. yeah. And, you know, similar to Native Americans here, they they were not one people. They're not Gauls. They, no. were, they were tribes. Hundreds they're, of small tribes. Yes. They're called like the Bell Guy and other names I can't remember. But one thing, because they're headhunters, they would, um, Put they would they would tr- how maybe people today how we you might have um, trophy like a hunter might have trophy animals they would do have the trophies would be the heads of their enemies and yeah. they would they would hang them on front of their houses they would hang them from the bridles of their horses and they would put them in like boxes in their house where when you would come over they would show you these heads in a box yeah but they <laughs> but they preserved the heads <clears throat> in cedar oil yeah incredible. And so I guess I guess you could just be looking at some head that's decades old and old and not like yeah. decomposed. Isn't that gnarly? Gnarly. There's this thing in ancient Ireland too. It's called the cult of the head. Have you heard of this? Please. I think in the Gaulish countries there was a belief among like most peoples in general, I think, that because we talk out of our mouth, our head is like where our soul could dwell, you know? Not necessarily where our heart is. Mm. And so when you have someone's head, it's like you hold their soul. You hold their being, like the essence of their being. And in Ireland, there's all this art of just like pictures of heads, like alone. And people were like, what is with this? 
And they believe it's a reference to this much older practice of the cult of the head when people would keep the heads of their, of their own dead, not necessarily just people they've killed. Um, and yeah, like the, the practice of looking at the head as the gateway mm. to the soul and to the body. And I think, you know, in Filipino culture, like there's tons of nations in the Philippines, what is called the Philippines now. And there are folks called headhunters mm. from there as well. And they had a similar practice. Mm. Where they would keep the heads of people so I, I for was, various reasons. I was reading that headhunting has been practiced across the entire globe, and yeah. the the North American, uniquely North American version, is the scalping, slightly different. Mm-hmm. It's you not keep the taking hair. the whole yeah. head. Yes, and the sacredness of hair too is also very. I want to talk about that. Yeah, I want to know your thoughts on this, and I hope I'm not offending anyone by saying this, but um, I immediately noticed when I started uh, being part being welcomed into the herbal plant world that I was very, my observe, I was observing very starkly, a stark observation that 90, 95% of the women, even 60, 70 years old had long hair. And you don't see that in normal society. And I, you know, knowing mythology, knowing folklore, like across the world, hair has been associated with a woman's power. And to see these, these women who are, who are like 70 with long gray hair, it's so powerful. It's even beautiful. And I wonder why our culture, women's hair is getting shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter. Like, what is it about the hair? I'm not a woman. Like, what is it about hair? I have long hair. That yeah. <laughs> you have long hair. What is it about, about that? The, the power in hair? I don't know. That's such a good question. I haven't really thought about that. I... You know, historically too, like men had long hair in many cultures as well. And like specific rituals around how you do and don't braid their hair and tend people's hair is very important. Some people never cut their hair, like in the Sikh religion of any type. They braid their hair up and wrap it around and and cover it up in turban. And um, special head coverings, like in Hasidic Jewish women never show their hair to Mm -hmm. anyone but their husband and wear wigs that look like hair over their real hair. So I just feel like... Hair is a strange thing because it appears to grow after we die. It's almost this like magical body part, right? Mm. It's neither living nor dead. It's an in-between thing. And if you have someone else's hair in folk magic, you can do about anything you want to them. It is them. It is the part of their soul almost. So I wonder. Yes, I've heard that the little, the witch will take a hair. Yeah. If you, if somebody's messing with your man in Appalachian folk magic, you grab one of her hairs you wrap it around a white pine spike, like a piece of splinter, and you throw it in a creek, and she'll move as far down the creek as that splinter will go. <laughs> There's all these spells like that from history that incredible with people's hair. If you burn someone's hair, it's a curse on them. If you boil someone's hair, it's a curse on them. You know, so you have to watch out with your hair. And like some people would gather up their hair and bury it because if birds get your hair and make a nest with it, you'll go crazy. <laughs> That's another Appalachian folk belief. So oh, I love that. I think also too, like femininity and like what does it mean to be feminine, like is confusing. And like when you're an older woman, like I'm 35 about, and I've already noticed like my my value as a young woman is waning. Mm. I'm not necessarily as red as as a young woman anymore. I have visible crow's feet, and like I'm, you know, there's, it's a different. You start to notice it around mid 30s. And as women, your value, you know, conventionally speaking, lies in your appearance. And in men, culturally speaking, 
in America, it lies on what you can produce. Mm. And so when we lose our value, like if a man can't work, he's like not masculine. Yes. He's not a man. Yes. He's emasculated. And if a woman is unattractive or old or disabled or not, has short hair, she's not feminine. She's not value, not valued as a woman. These are very like um, gender essentialist kind of views. And like, I'm a queer woman. So like, obviously I navigate that in different ways. And like someone who's non-binary is going to navigate that in different ways. But society kind of puts that on us. It's not stuff we're like, let's sign up for the being emasculated party. Like nobody Mm. wants that. And I, I think for myself, like I'm treated differently. I've had short hair and presented as very masculine. I've also, now that I have really long hair, I, I am treated like completely differently by mm. society. And it's like mostly positive, mm. minus when people grab my hair that I don't know, which has happened sometimes. Oh, man. Some, <laughs> some like real, like real rough country guy when we were looking at houses grabbed Vivian's hair. What? Like touched her hair and she was just like, what How does the? she have long hair? Yeah, long black hair. It's dyed black. But yeah, very uh, um, abrasive and uh, yeah, breaking into <clears> someone's <throat> space. But um, I'm sorry um, about that. Um, let's see. That is fascinating what you're saying. Yes, I wish I could have really long hair, but mine is so thin. But the, back to the galls, the galls, yeah. the men would have long braided hair. And they hair. limed their hair. What's that? They added lime to their hair to make it stand up. Oh. They would like, there's a. There's a sculpture called the Dying Gaul. Have you ever seen it? No. Look it up. The Dying Gaul. It's a beautiful marble sculpture um, from, I think, the Roman, a Roman artist made it. So he was looking at mm-hmm. the Gauls through the lens of, like, we fought these people, we beat them, but like, mm-hmm. look how fierce they were. Mm-hmm. That's his kind of observation. And this guy is laying on his side and he's screaming, and his hair is rising in the air like flames <laughs> because they would spike their hair up with lime. And make so it look cool. all wild before they would fight, and they'd fight naked and just be like maniacs. This reminds so, me of my yeah. like my, back when I was in metal bands, <clears throat> like doing, <laughs> yeah. doing my hair big. Yeah. Um, well, that ties into something I wanted I want to bring up, which maybe you might have some stories for or something. Is yeah. is I wonder how much of, and I'm going to give you an example. I wonder how much of what we do unconsciously is actually from our ancestry. Like for mm-hmm. instance. Here I am in front of you. I'm wearing a plaid shirt. I've got a huge mustache. If I could have nice long hair, I would have nice long hair. Um, if it were winter, I'd be wearing completely wool. All of these were traits of the Gauls. Mm-hmm. The Gauls wore plaids made out of wool, and they were known for having huge mustaches. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I didn't know that. So it's like we do these things that, oh, my God, is this, am I doing this not even knowing why I'm doing it and it ties into my ancient people or, or my family history. Do you have any examples for yourself like that you feel that you've connected to something like that? Maybe. I mean, maybe growing my hair out. When I got divorced in 2016, I like went through a huge transformation and I started my business like teaching with Blood and Spice Bush and made it not just a blog. And I, my hair grew really a lot. I don't really know why, but I like woke up one day and I was like, oh crap, I have hair down to my butt. This is nuts. And I was reading about, you know, hair and, and like a lot of Irish folks would keep their hair super long, men and women, and brush it and braid it and like took a lot of pride in it. And like I struggled to care for myself a lot. Um, I still do sometimes when I'm stressed or anxious or going through a hard time. And just like the act of like having long hair means you have to take care of it. It like gives you something to do. So I wondered sometimes if like when I started caring for myself more and living a more intentional life, and trying to make amends for like my shitty past, <laughs> I um, I wondered if my hair was kind of like a measure to 
to be like, well, if you don't take care of this, it's going to like wrap itself around your neck and choke you and like get all mm. knotted and crazy. You like know? a garden that you're not tending <laughs> exactly, to. Exactly. Yeah. So now I wonder about that. I didn't brush my hair today also. Do you know anything <laughs> about like the, you kind of brought it up a little mm-hmm. bit, but I don't know if maybe we can expand yeah. about the braiding or not. Cause Vivian, my girlfriend has been very much getting into the braids. There are like certain styles yeah. or, um, yeah, of braid that are, are like back to the the Celtic and and Viking and yeah. like, do you know anything about um, yeah. the meaning or purpose or mythology or anything like that about the braids? There's a lot of curses that people would do on each other with their own. Like, if you could secretly braid, it's called a witch knot into someone's hair. You'll hear. And a lot of old ballads, they'll be like, and then she found the witch knot in her hair and she like unbraids this braid that she secretly has in her hair while she was sleeping. Someone snuck in and put it in. And then like all these bad things that were happening cease. And so incredible. we've also found ice mummies of men and women with braided hair. And sometimes they're corded, like they cordage their hair where it's like spirals. And other times it's like specific types of plates. But it's hard to say we don't know exactly what the braids meant. And we probably never will know. But we do know that if you had tidy braided hair, it meant you were like a put together person who was high in society. It was a way for people to look at you visually and say, oh, that person's this type of a person. Man, that yeah. is so fascinating. Isn't that wild? Mm-hmm. It's really interesting. And it is true. Like, you see someone with really long hair, you're like, wow, that person really put a lot into that. Mm-hmm. You know, like there's there's something about that. It, I mean, yeah, back to kind of my observation from earlier, it is, I feel like in 2022, because it is kind of a... Um, it's not the norm. It is amazing to see old women with long hair. It looks oh, incredible. Yeah. Well, old women are beautiful. Yes. And when you when you age as a woman, you're not seen as a sexual object anymore or sexualized in any way. You're seen as this like person that takes up space that is neither sexual nor insexual. It's a very strange thing. And I've talked about this with my older women friends. And I'm now even just starting to experience like the very first inklings of it as I age. And I was at the Women's Herbal Conference one year, and this 70-something woman walked up, and I was working at a kombucha tent when I used to sell kombucha for a living. Um, and she walked, and she was so strikingly beautiful. Like, I could tell in, like, her younger years, this woman would have, like, stopped trains. Like, absolutely stunningly beautiful. And 70 years old, her had long, thick gray hair down past her butt, mm. beautifully styled and brushed, and she just had a beautiful outfit on. And she walked into the tent. There was nobody around. I was bored as hell. And I was like, ma'am, I don't mean to be weird, but you are like stunningly beautiful. And she started to cry. Mm. And she was like, no one has called me beautiful in years. When you're old, no one sees you. And I was like, oh, like I just, we cried it out and hugged it out. But I was like genuinely attracted to this person. Like mm. she was a beautiful person. Mm. I wasn't just like giving her a compliment yes, to yes, meet yes. some need. And, and it really made me think about how we look at especially like older men and older women and older people in general as we age are deemed like not well, like well, invisible. And well, it's my weird, feeling, you know? Hear, my feeling hearing that is yeah. we live in a culture that lacks ritual and like um, lacks mythology. Yeah. Because in, I mean, just from like a Jungian perspective or like a mythological perspective, yeah. and I'm a guy, so what am what the hell do I know when I'm talking about women? But, you know, the trajectory is the maiden mother crone. So yeah. there are these like three powerful archetypal phases of a woman's life, perhaps. You know, first it's what you're saying, the yeah. maiden, then you move into a creator, and then you move into the wise elder. Yeah, and then there's some people like myself, like I uh, I had cancer and I had a hysterectomy 
two years ago, I had cervical mm. cancer. So I'm not ever going to be a mother. Mm-hmm. And so when you're a 35-year-old woman and people are like, when are you going to have kids? You know, you ask yourself, like, am I valuable here? Mm. Am I like, do I create value? And then I think about like, well, I write books and I tattoo people. I make art. I sing. I do all these creation-based things. I'm like, oh, yeah, no, we do. You th- are giving birth to we things. We do give birth to things no matter what. And like men that might feel like, man, it'd be really cool if I could have children. Like, why can't I do that? Like, you do give birth to things as well. You create in different ways. And, yeah, Vivian and I yeah. have been talking about that a lot. Like, can you feel the same fulfillment if you are uh, extremely, she's an oil painter. If she's yeah. extremely focused instead on the birth of her oil paintings, you know. Yeah. Or, you know, we, I, I, have, think so. I have a friend, Donna, um, Donna LaPree. She's herbalist, artist, one of the most enchanted witchy ladies I've ever yeah. met. Um, she doesn't have children, but, you know, she's been working with plants all these years, giving birth to so much art very wise person and very powerful person when I'm in her presence. So yes, yeah. of course, of course, everyone has right? their own trajectory. Yeah. I think that's great, but that's true. Like you look at archetypes and archetypes are helpful as tools, right? Mm. But they're not like the, there's always somebody who's going to fall in the outlier and make a special case and do mm-hmm. something totally unexpected, which I love. Mm. I think that's really special. Mm. Okay. I want to talk about, because I love the history stuff and you are so deep into it. Yeah. You were putting on this online class. Maybe you already did. Yeah, I did. Ah. It's it's ongoing. It's ongoing. Mm-hmm. About this Saint Hildegard? Hildegard. Okay, what yeah. is that? What who is that? Saint Hildegard von Bingen. She was born in 1099, like literally 1099, which when I think about it, I'm like that's like a thousand years ago. <laughs> Not crazy. In uh what is now known as Germany. Um, she's born in Bingen, so she's Hildegard von Bingen, which just means Hildegard of Bingen. That's where she's from. What was it yeah. then? What, what, what Bingen. was it? Uh, I guess it was, uh, I'm not sure what they would have called their own place at that time. I'll have to look at it. But there was probably different place names that are no longer extant, you know, as the lands have changed so much. But she was born like the eighth child of a noble family, medium speed noble family and so she was the youngest so she was given to the church to be a nun and she was taught by this woman named Jutta who was a recluse who was walled into this building and a little window and lived into this like little beehive stone room by choice hopefully by choice yeah she was a like a recluse and she just like prayed and had weird visions all the time and she taught 8-year-old Hildegard von Bingen who started to experience splitting migraines and visions from a very young age. And she was afraid to tell anyone about them, but she told Jutta. And eventually her visions went on to be confirmed by the Pope himself as real visions. Um, this is before the 1300s when witch burnings became very big. Um, so in another time, I think she would have been killed as a witch, but she started to receive mystic visions of music and of herbal cures. And she started to heal people. And eventually she became an abbess and had two of her own abbeys and nunneries. And she intuited all these plant cures. And so I wrote an article a few years ago for Verdus, Verdant Gnosis, which is a journal for the Verdus Genii Symposium I used to go to every year that my friends and um, people who have really been mentors to me, Marcus McCoy and Katamara Rosarium, put on out west. And it's a wonderful event. And I hope it will happen again someday. But uh, I wrote an article for their journal about Hildegard, and I was like, man, it'd be cool to look at all the herbs she uses and see, like, in high Middle Ages German folk magic, is she actually just practicing magic? And she was. 
she has a, a spell, quote unquote, she would hate to be called a witch. You know, it would have offended her. So I'm not saying she is a witch. I got some mean comments on my Instagram about her. They're like, you're trying to say she's a witch and she's not. And I was like, no, no, I'm not saying she's a witch. I'm just saying she literally did engage in folk magic, though. Whether that makes her a witch or not is up for debate. But I'm not saying she was walking around going, I'm a witch. She absolutely would be offended by that. She was a Catholic nun. No way would she say that. She criticizes the heathens all the time. But she takes a mandrake root in one of her remedies and says, for a man who knows no happiness, let him take a mandrake root and wash it in a spring in the morning in clean water and then sleep with the mandrake root against his person and, and perspire upon it in the night, wrapped up in a blanket. Mandrake is full of scopalamine, which is a delirium, quote unquote, psychedelically augmenting chemical that was used by witches to make flying ointments and aphrodisiacs and things. And then he'll be glad again, sweating on the psychedelic root all night, wrapped up in a blanket with it. And to me, I'm like, okay, Hildegard. That is, inc- <laughs> that is incredible. Isn't this so cool? What's a flying ointment? Flying ointment is a uh, postulated ointment. That means we don't know if it was actually really historically accurate. In the Renaissance, 14 to 1500s, in, uh, there was a resurgence in, in interest in the occult as natural sciences. So they were like, this isn't witchcraft. We're just doing science. That's how they got around it in the church. But they, um, they claim there are all these recipes for flying ointments that witches would rub on their bodies to uh, spiritually astrally project to the Sabbath and meet with the devil and cavort with him. And um, there's so much misinformation about flying ointments um, and wishful thinking around it. We don't know hardly anything uh, for certain about them. However, there's a great idea. Sarah Ann Lawless, who I'm really inspired by, is an amazing poison plants um, apothecary and uh, witch, and she's a hugely influential in my own work. She thinks that a lot of these ointments are used as pain ointments. In Appalachian folk medicine, datura, which is a wildly psychedelic, you know, entheogen plant in South America, is used externally for pain because it has all these alkaloids, scopolamine and hyenoscopolamine, and these plants cause shifts in our perceptions. They can kill you if you take them internally, uh, but externally they can cause more subtle shifts in what you're perceiving and can sometimes cause delirium, which is useful magically, you know? So people think that maybe these ointments were in these herbalist houses who were accused of witchcraft and they were like, well, see, she's got this henbane ointment or this mandrake ointment, therefore she's a witch, so we have to burn her because she's using it to fly to the Sabbath, but maybe she was an herbalist who was using it for arthritis. This is like the, it's a real like deep web. There's a book called The Witch's Ointment that goes into the history of this that I highly recommend. Mm, that is so fascinating. Isn't that wild? Um, so what plants, what plants um, have you, like which ones was she finding? So at her time period, was the medicinal properties of these plants known or was she literally like finding medicine that was unknown to the contemporaries? She was finding, she knew, the plants were already known to be medicinal, but she found ways to apply them that were unique. Okay. Like um, one of my favorite cures she has is she says, take a doe skin and cut an apple branch. Sorry, I'm going to sneeze. Take an apple branch 
and cut it so the sap is running out and you rub the clean dough skin on it to soak up all the sap. And then you use that as like a bandage on someone. If you think about it, anything in the rose family, like apple trees are tannic, they're astringent. So if you took this clean dough skin full of this wet, nice, fresh sap and put it on like a wound, it would astringe the skin. It's mildly antibacterial. It would look to be miraculous, you know? Incredible. And a doe is in a deer. Yeah, it was a a piece of buckskin. Yeah. Doe a deer. A female deer. Hey, you know what popped in my head (laughs) when you were talking about all that? Tell me. Is, um, I can't remember his name, but- what you were saying about how magic came back into popularity and was seen as science, yeah. that, that mathematics was a cult. Oh, totally. Pythagoras was like a wizard, you know? And um, I can't remember his name. There's a famous magician who was like the, the court, like the closest <clears throat> companion of Queen... John D. John D. What a guy. What a guy. So he created, he was doing all this math. And he was communing. He's an astrologer as well. Astrologer yeah. is communing with with spirits, with yeah. angels and stuff, like with some kind of like with this like really rough guy who was like could. Uh, it was like him and some kind of like street yeah. urchin guy he had who, like a rapscallion surgeon who was his like right. bud, yeah, that who, he like fights with all the time. <laughs> yeah, but and he was like the closest companion of which queen was it? Elizabeth. 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 Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, what he was doing alchemy, right? And he was trying to. In a way, yeah. So he was trying to do something that he could never do, like Philosopher's Stone or something. I can't remember what it was. There's a lot of And he would travel things. Europe and be invited to these different courts because they thought he could do something, but he could, he could never pull it off. I yeah. forgot what it was. I think it was he was trying to commune with the dead. And mm. like he had a couple of different like goals and things he was trying to do. There's a couple of great books about him. Once again, as a figure, there's a lot of like fake stories about him. So mm. it's so hard to piece through what was real and we don't, maybe we'll never really know, but he definitely was trying to create gold and find buried treasure and get spirits to tell him where treasure was. (laughs) And that's a huge, like, you know, divining water witching? Yes. That comes from the 1600s in Germany. Young gentlemen would like go out and be like, we're going to cut a hazel rod and bless it by the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost. And we're going to go treasure hunting. It was like a fun pastime and it made its way all the way to Appalachia, to West Virginia. every... <laughs> Every time I do one of these podcasts, I want to find an interesting image to post with it on Instagram. So I'm exploring all these um, uh, copyright-free archival pictures, and I just saw this medieval woodcut of a man holding the two twigs, and I was like, "Is that it? Is that that's it? The water witching? That's it? I want to say something about the water witching." But um, so to the water witching, and how you said it traveled here to West yeah. Virginia, and maybe this can open up a conversation now about more of the regional folk magic yeah. is like, um, cause I've talked about it or we had a guest who was a West Virginia folklorist. I who listened talked to about, it. Yeah. He yeah. Ta- so he talked about one of the unique versions of witchcraft here in the Americas is the water witch, which was usually a man. Yep. So we just moved to this, um, on the border of West Virginia and Virginia. Yeah. I've befriended our elderly neighbors who are, you know, very traditional Christians, um, you know, they've lived on that property their whole lives, basically. They had an old farmhouse. But I went, you know, I go over there and I, I've, we've given them ramps and stuff like that, ramp leaves. And uh, so I went over there the other day and, um, you know, I'm trying to, always trying to mine for interesting little folklore and stuff like that. So, you know, this man is probably in his 80s and we're sitting on the couch and he starts talking about his, uh, um, how he had to have a watch fixed. And I was, he's like, yeah. And he's talking this and this and this. Couldn't find a battery, blah, blah, blah. And then he goes, um, and then he goes, 
yeah, I can't wear watches. I just put them in my pocket. I was like, well, why can't you wear watches? And he, he messes says, them up, right? He says, with before he leaves the store, the hands on the watch are spinning round and round. And his wife, this old lady is like, yep, I've seen it, I've seen it. Like yeah. the, the wheels on it are just spinning so fast until it breaks before he even gets out of the store. Then I said, well, hey, maybe that's a gift. I was like, hey, and I'm just ki- kind of kidding around. I was like, hey, maybe when you're one of them water witches. And he's like, I can do it. <gasps> and he's like, oh. I can do it. He's like, I can't, I don't know where those rods are. And he said his buddy from, um, who's now deceased is the one who found with water witching with the rods found their well yeah. on his property. You can still hire someone in this very county to come do that for you. So cool. Yeah. And like you were saying about finding treasure with it, mm-hmm. there are people I've seen on t- archaeological TV yeah. shows in like Western Virginia who do it. And I want to get one on the podcast, a treasure hunter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Epic. It's wild. It, it's funny because I, I thought water witching must be like a super, super old, like from ancient Egypt or something. But no, like the, the way they do it with the forked stick and walk around and men being thought to be best at it comes from Germany in the 1650s, I think. And that's the first mentions of that kind of treasure hunting. And, so, that and I guess belief, water, I guess it would yeah. be an immense treasure, yeah. even just as a symbol, yeah. as a metaphor. I mean, to be able to have clean water, that's a treasure. It is, yeah. And it's wild. Like I tapped a spring at our place with my partner and our friend and she found the spring by stepping in it and like kind of just walked around until she found it. And I don't know if she intuited it or not, but she just walked right into it. And we've been looking for one for like 10 years. It was Incredible. so cool. Yeah, now that's Incredible. our main water and it's really great. So on this topic, yeah. um, what sorts of things have you discovered in being here in Appalachia? Because you're not uh, from Appalachia. Like what kinds of things have you learned folk magic wise, like talking around with people or like, what have you learned out here? I've it's more so many things like um, I was something that you know yeah. I asked the same question when I interviewed on Stanley just like what have you discovered <laughs> that's regional that was like really interesting to you fascinating to you oh my gosh with the with the regional yeah. folk magic so many things I think one thing I thought was interesting is that like stealing is magical in a way like if you steal a plant from someone else's yard it'll grow better. In your own. And I'm like, it's funny because there's all this folklore about taking things from other people and what it does and doesn't mean and like neighborliness. And I, I'm just so curious about that because there's like a culture of neighborliness and not going onto other people's property and not showing up uninvited. Like you just don't do that um, unless someone's very close with you. But there's all this folklore like a stolen dish rag or a stolen hat or a stolen piece of like a handkerchief would give you total control over another person's household and the milk in their cows and the eggs in their chickens. And like, it's just really interesting. But yeah, I've always been told, like if you steal a house plant from somebody else or take a cutting out of someone else's rose bush, it'll grow better for having been stolen. That's Isn't so that fascinating. And that kind of ties in with some of the Jungian concepts that I'm really into, like the yeah. shadow. So if a community is very glossy on and loving on the surface, there's no matter what, there's always a shadow. <laughs> So they're yeah. they're through folklore and and the folklore of the witch. You have that kind of shadow element. She's a shadow out loud. She's not. She's a shadow in plain sight, mm. right? And that's why she's so uncomfortable mm. as a cultural concept. Oh yes, because she's not pretending that she wants mm. the crops to grow. She's actively destroying them. You know mm. what I mean? Like she's just the the scapegoat, the cultural mm. scapegoat. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely the cultural scapegoat. Um. Um. God, I feel like going. I feel like going back to Europe. Yeah, 
in our conversation. So didn't you're with your book that you just came out with? Congratulations. Thank you're you. saying it's on on Simon and Schuster. That's enormous achievement. Thank you very much. Yes. And you say you're in the middle of writing your second one or already finished your second one and have a third one in your brain? I do, but I'm not supposed to talk about what they're about yet. Okay. So I'll tell you okay. in the future. <laughs> um But uh did you um I haven't been able to see your your book, but um was there an introduction mm. about like the history of witches? Like, yes. could you do a little bit of the history right now totally. of witchcraft? Yeah. So I think witchcraft starts when humans start. And witchcraft, if you ask what is witchcraft, it's trying to affect change with non-physical means to the world around you. So we'll start with that as our shared understanding of what witchcraft means, right? And I mean, couldn't you even say a prayer? Yeah. Prayer is. Yeah. I want this person in my family to get healed yeah, from sickness. That's magic, in my opinion. But the word witchcraft is so loaded now, it's more difficult to define. But um, yeah, I always tell people magic is just wishing for something so hard, it can't help but happen. You know? You I just have to figure out. That. You just have to figure out the right way to wish. Um, but yeah, the, the history of magic starts with like the first written texts. They have spoken non-physical charms against evil, against demons, against spirits, against illness, um, to bring luck. Um, like any of the earliest writings from China, from Sumer, you know, Mesopotamia, these cuneiform tablets, all of them contain spells. And um, in the word magia, magic, comes up in Latin in, you know, ancient Greece and Rome as a crime if you're performing magia. And that's, in that like, I would say it's like probably 300 BCE or something where that happens. And I have a timeline that is based on another scholar's work in my book that really outlines the history of witchcraft as we know it today. Um, but it's like in the 1300s, in the Middle Ages, we jump forward. Magic is infused throughout every aspect of culture of every place in the world. Until the 1300s, we get the, this is what, you know, witches go to the Sabbath. They kiss the devil's butthole. They do all this weird stuff. They, there's goats, like all these conventional things we think of now, they don't really come into play until the 1300s in, in Western Europe. And a lot of them are based off like ideas of Pan, a horned god, uh, or Sernunos or Kernunos, the Irish stag god, um, kind of bastardized with uh, fears, homophobia, fear of disabled people, deformed people, like all these things mixed together, fear of old people, old women, um, mixed together to make this image of the witch that now is just part of our Western mindset. Well, I was literally just exploring this in the last podcast. Yeah. I read all the stuff about Pan. I read it on the podcast. Um, I, I um, you know, there's a Jungian book about how Pan turned into the devil. Yes. And, you know, um, I definitely find value in anyone's religious beliefs, but um, it does seem that like Christianity, when it really first came to power, Catholicism perhaps more so, really demonize the body. Yes. So sex, you know, our wild nature. And I mean, that's Pan. Yeah. So Pan is animal. a sexual half animal, instinctually run um, wild man. Mm -hmm. And you know, we can't, oh, civilization is becoming more and more civilized. We can't have a wild man everywhere. <laughs> so we need to, you know, that's one form of demonizing Pan and he turned into the devil. Yeah, exactly. There's no mention in the Bible really that the devil has horns, you know? Hmm. Um, there's no one that says Lucifer's walking around with big horns and cloven feet. Well, that's actually really interesting you just said that because it's even more folkloric. Like it kind of 
was a trans- the devil is folkloric as a character. He's mm. a folk hero, a folk demon, you know? Because mm. if you think about Milton, like Paradise Lost, the whole trick of that, are you familiar with that work? I have not read it. I know of it, but I have not read it. I would think you would delight in it. Um, he writes a story about the, the fall of Lucifer as the morning star. And if you think about it, Lucifer is the first rebel against tyranny. He's like, why are you, God, why are you like king of everything? And why can't we do anything we want? And like, why do we have to just like sing about how great you are all the time? He's the first rebel. He's the first person with self-actualization. And so some people have, you know, Satanists see Lucifer as a inspiring, self-will-driven man, the first rebel, mm-hmm. not the folk devil that like is telling you to like punch your brother or something you know like Mm. it's it's very like simplified Mm. and milton tells the story of lucifer from lucifer's perspective and at the end you're like you know what lucifer's not so bad he's actually kind of cool and then at the end of the story milton's like gotcha you've been seduced by the devil because you feel bad for him you Mm. relate to him Mm. and it's kind of a bait and switch because how could you not Mm. you read the story about someone who's being oppressed and they are brave and they're punished for their bravery but they still persevere despite it and you you find kinship there and then milton's like gotcha <laughs> and it's really like upsetting mm. when you read it You're like, you feel a lot of feelings about it it's beautifully written well and then just from my kind of basic understanding the devil is cast away because he loves god so much i think that's kind of how it goes in it depends on it depends on the the teller right mm. there's so many different like layers there but i mean how torturous is that you love somebody so much that you're cast away from them forever and then your job is to rule the the immoral and the evil in life like what a what i mean just for loving someone so much you got that's your punishment there is a torturous element to some sides of the poor devil it's definitely yeah you definitely feel bad for him. And if you look at the devil in Appalachian folklore, there's times where the devil is kind of like your buddy. Like he, he comes through at the end in a way that is unexpected. He's not just this like modern. I love horror. Like a lot, I watch a lot of horror and love scary stuff. Always have um, probably too much. And modern horror films are doing this thing right now where they're exploring like, what does absolute evil look like? Like all the characters die at the end. The devil, the demon wins. There's no way to beat the demon. You are powerless. I just see this over and over again in all these new movies. They're like evil. There's nothing you can do to fight it. But that's just not really like an interesting story trope to me as a human, Mm. right? Mm. Because that's never true. There's always something, always something that people can do that someone can do, not not everyone. But I feel like in the old stories, like the devil will come and he'll challenge you to a fiddle contest. And he'll give you the golden fiddle if you play better than him. Mm. He doesn't just annihilate you at the end. He plays fair in a way. And I think that that's an interesting, like, the folk devil of Appalachia is like a curious figure. We see, it would be neat to see somebody write a book about that. That's fascinating. Right? I, um, I don't know if, if I'm, I'm, I'm debating if I'm allowed to talk about this. It's someone else's story, life story. Um, maybe if I talk about it vaguely, um, I know a guy who had a really brutal childhood, like a dad that would just like beat the fuck out of him with like a, with a chain oh and my like God. him, the dad and the brother would like force the dog to attack him. And his mother was equally as wicked. <clears throat> 
And um, I'm, so he's been through the ringer. Um, and there was something like at some point when he was, he was working as a baker and he went up to the top of the bakery and he was like carrying a bag of flour or sugar and he heard a voice and it was the devil. And it asked him to make a deal with him. And he, he basically kind of like gave his soul to the devil to have success in life. And because that was the, you know, God, Jesus was not there for him. Like it was, it was this was the, the spiritual force that I guess was beckoning him or would actually help him when no one, when he was outcast from everything else. Yeah. And he ended up becoming a famous um, musician in the underground in the subway system in New York City. He was, he got coined the king of the underworld, the underground, king of the underground. He himself. So he himself. So it's like this, this, that spirit. And then you wonder, you know, you hear there's old stories, like, right? There's like black stories, like with- Robert Johnson. Yes. Who sold his soul to the devil. To to the best guitar player. To to be the best guitar player. He died very young. Yes. And, but the thing is it, it, if you sell your soul to the devil, is it'll, it's going to take something. It's going to take something back. It's not free. No, your soul. Yeah. It's just your mortal soul. Yeah. <laughs> That's all the cost. <laughs> so I hope I was okay in telling that. I, I think I, I think you can always check in later and yeah. edit it out. Um, so um, um, let's see, where, where are we going with all this? Um, on these darker topics, do you think there actually are such so I interviewed a Christian paranormal investigator. That's one so my, cool. One of my favorite conversations I've ever had. Wow. She very much feels that there are actual demons. Yes. I, you know, with all of the paranormally stuff, I'm not just like, I don't just believe in everything. I don't know how I feel about anything, really. I don't just believe in Bigfoot. I, I mean, to me, Bigfoot's pretty corny, but <laughs> maybe, maybe, but maybe it's real. Like, I, you know, I've had ghost experiences, so I know that that is something. I don't know what it is. But more and more, I do feel that there are actual demonic forces, energies. I don't know what it is. And I feel like you can see it. You can see people who are haunted either by their trauma or whatever. You can see drug addicts in the street that are demonic. Like they are, they're the, they have a face on them that is of a spirit, like a, a dark spirit that is draining them until their mortal body dies. I know when I was drinking to complete oblivion that I was starting to feel that I was allowing some very dark thing um, into me. And I know I'm very into Jung. So I know that there's the shadow, which is my own dark side to deal with. But I also feel like you can engage in activities that are allowing dark forces that will fuck your life. Um, and do you believe in any of that? Yes, of course. <laughs> What's well, not I feel, of course. No, right. No, I just feel like if you are interested in like witchcraft and stuff to maintain an interest in it, to continue Years after years and years, I was 12 when I first got into witchcraft. You have to see something, you know, like blind faith. I don't think that exists. Something has to happen to, to hook you. And things happened that hooked me. I wanted desperately as a child to see. 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 I wanted desperately as a child to see.
wanted desperately as a child to see ghosts and like see spirits and I never did. I never saw a thing. I felt strange things, but I'd always be like, oh, maybe I'm making it up. I was a really lonely child and I was like, you know, I can't make friends with other kids, but maybe it'd be really wonderful if I could make friends with the unseen. And I felt like even they didn't want me. I was like, oh, even these like spirits won't show themselves to me. When I turned 16, I started having strange experiences that were undeniable and witnessed by others. And that was when I was like, oh, I'm kind of glad this didn't start happening when I was younger because I would have lost my absolute shit. <laughs> um, I witnessed like disembodied heads floating in spaces and like heard sounds and voices with other people present in places where no one was. I just had all these experiences when I was 20. I had my first terrifying experience. And I, that was when I knew, like, what did I get myself into? Like, this is so much bigger than I thought it was. I lived in this apartment in Vermont where I went to college. And I woke up one night. I, know, I, was, I was awake. It was 8 p.m. I was going to bed early. And I had my door unlocked because I knew my roommate was going to come home later and she didn't have a key yet. And I thought someone was breaking into my house because I looked up from my bed and there was a gigantic shadow seven plus feet tall probably with very long arms standing in my doorway and I felt like an absolute chill of terror looking at this figure and I thought it was a person at first I didn't think oh this is like a demon or something and I, I sat up in bed my light was on I could fully see everything and I yelled who are you and I black out I don't remember anything after that I woke up the next morning in my bed with my light still on I know it's terrifying right I woke up the next day and my roommate got up and was like Becky what were you doing last night and I was like what do you mean I, I went to bed early but I had some weird dreams you know she was like you were in the living room when I came home with the door wide open and you were staring at your computer screen in the dark with nothing on it just tapping the computer and I talked to you and you sounded so weird and like you weren't making any sense and I was like oh my god like I was horrified. I didn't tell her what had happened. I was like, did I get possessed? Like, what happened last night? And I for, I just kind of, like, wrote it off. I was like, maybe I had a waking nightmare. Like, maybe I sleptwalked. I just wrote it off, even though I had that vivid memory. About a week later, my friend, who does not believe in anything paranormal, is the most, like, scientific bummer, like, no fun, came over. And in my apartment, there was a hallway with the kitchen and the bathroom facing opposite each other. And then around the corner is my living room. I'm in the living room. My friend goes to the bathroom and I hear her voice, Becky. And I'm like, what? From the living room. She's like, what the fuck was that? And I'm like, what? I didn't hear anything. She's like a very tall, seven foot tall shadow figure with very long arms just walked through your kitchen. And she started crying and she was like, what the fuck was that? And I was like, I don't know. We went in the kitchen. There's no one in the apartment. It's very small. She, she described to me what she saw and it was exactly the same thing I had seen. And I, I started crying and I told her, I was like, oh my God, I, I saw this thing a couple nights ago and I think it did something to me. And we were so freaked out. And after that, all kinds of weird shit started happening in the apartment and none of my friends wanted to come over. And I continued to see that figure. He never spoke to me. He never made any... Faith. He had no face. It's just a shadow. 
my friend Jarvis one time, another person, 0% belief in paranormal stuff would mock me for telling these stories. And even though Kylie's crying and saying, I saw it too, I saw it too, doesn't believe us. He house sits for me. I give him my only key and I'm like, do not lose my key because I, at the time, was very broke. I was like, I can't not make another one. And I had a really big uh, TV in my apartment. So all my friends would go when I was out of town and hang out at my house and watch my TV. And he took some of our friends, which was totally fine with me. And he said, guys, don't let me lose this key. I'm putting it right here. And he put it on the kitchen table. At the end of the night, they've watched the movie. They get to leave. The key is gone. And he's like, guys, who took the key? And it's him, my friend Eli, my ex-boyfriend Tyler, and a couple of our other friends. And all of them told me the same story. So I know they weren't messing with me. They searched the whole apartment. The key is nowhere to be seen. Jarvis is like getting frantic. He's like, Becky's going to kill me. We can't lock the door. Like, what are we, I can't leave. Like, what are we going to do? They're all in my bedroom, which is at the end of the hall. The living room is like pretty far back and they hear clang. They go back in the living room. Their key is on the table again. And they, Jarvis apparently grabs the key and just runs out of the apartment and like was so terrified. Tyler said he felt a very cold like chill and like he just like was like there's something weird going on here and I for some reason I never really felt afraid in my own apartment like it was pretty shocking but I was kind of used to seeing stuff at that point and like I had a number of people try to sleep in there and they would wake up with a shadow standing over the bed and then they would sleep in my backyard in a sleeping bag instead of sleeping in my house like that was what apparently that was that scary and years later, I went to a psychic and I asked her, like, what was that? She's like, oh, it was, an, it was an interterrestrial. It was an interdimensional traveler. And I was like, what? And I made sense because he almost seemed like he didn't see us. He would walk by you and never look at you. It was bizarre. And I I never felt afraid of it, per se, because it didn't, like, come at me. But my friends and, like, other people would tell me they felt terrified to be alone in my apartment. And I, so I just, like... That was when I knew. I was like, something. There are forces we have no idea about. And we're just not ready to deal with them sometimes. One night I woke up, and there were two very small shadow children in my room. And they were, like, trying to climb up on my window. Like, they were trying to get up on the window. And I was, like, half asleep, and I was looking at them. And I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm seeing some weird stuff again. Maybe I'm dreaming. And I told them, I was like, y'all, you can't climb up on that window ledge. It's like this big. Like, I, like very reasonably, it was like, it's like an inch. You can't stand on that. And they both turned and looked at me and in one voice, together answered me and said, we can do anything. And I was just like, I sat up, I turned all the lights on, and they disappeared. And I never had any of them speak to me except for those two. And it was awful. Like, they, they had no faces. They were just shadows, like empty space shaped like a person. And... To this day, this person I talked to in Casadega, this like psychic lady who was a kook, interesting person, super fun, said that these were aliens. These are like interdimensional beings that would pop in and out and may not even be able to see us. And that was what she maintained. And I don't know what I believe. It's one that I believe is an interdimensional Interdimensional shadow that you hear. You spoke to me. You were so. And I hear a voice shadow. You I know? don't. I mean, I've got. I was getting chills this entire time talking. I love watching your reactions while I'm telling you the story. It like makes I mean, it more fun for me. You know, <laughs> I've had other people say similar stuff on the podcast. The West Virginia Cryptids guy. He talked about. I love that one. Yeah, I think I've listened to all your podcasts. Thank you. He yeah. sa- said he saw his grandmother 
commune his brother saw his grandmother back in the day communing with the quote unquote devil something and then their family has been haunted by these dark angels like figures over and over again it's like ancestral hauntings the shadow people that's what i've always heard about and that's what i thought these were so that is so terrifying to me um you know i just recalled a story that i've never told on podcasts i thought maybe i'll add to that because you're saying perhaps extraterrestrial so again, another topic, I don't know how I feel about it. I think it's probably obvious Same. that they're aliens. I don't right. really know anything more than that. Uh, but I do know that, um, God, this is this stuff is so terrifying. Um, See, I love it. Yeah. It's like a sick, well, weird so, fear. So I don't know what that, it is. This is one of my fears with a lot of um, occult stuff, is I don't want to invite these things around. You know, in Italy, when you speak of something, you don't want it to hear you make horns like this, put your like you're doing the heavy metal rock symbol, point them at the ground and go, one, two, three. It's called il corno. Give the devil his own horn so he can't hear you. So if you're incredible. afraid, yeah, just go. That's incredible. Yeah. Just shake him at the ground. Il corno. So at metal concerts, when people have got, so what you were doing yeah. is you had your pinky and your, your index finger up and the rest of your fist closed, just like you like see. Like you're going, rock on. Yeah, rock like on, heavy metal Ozzy symbol. Osbourne. Yeah. yeah. Now just face that at the ground like you're a bull mm-hmm. that's hitting the ground with its own horns. You're and putting it back in the earth. It's giving the devil his own horns. Incredible. Yeah. I would learn that from an Italian friend. Incredible. I wanted to tell you these two dreams now because we're talking about, tell me about extraterrestrial. Them. Tell me your spooky dreams. So I had a dream <clears throat> back when I lived in New York that scared me to the core. I was maybe 27. Right now I'm 35. Mm-hmm. It's 27. I have a dream where I'm in the room that is my room. Some, oh, I'm getting chills right now. Mm-hmm. Some male figure, shadow figure is in the room with me, he tells me that at age 33, I will be taken by extraterrestrials. And I will, and I say, will I, will I be able to come back? And he says, you will never be able to come back. And I just start crying. Oh my god! And I wake up and I also am shown a whole bunch of bizarre letters, like triangular symbols, symbols that is some kind of alphabet. I woke up crying and I was like, you know, I go every week to a Jungian analyst to talk about my dreams. There are different types of dreams. This one was like, it was kind of like real. I know what you mean. So, oh man, I'm getting spooky here. So years go by and 33 is coming and I'm getting really scared to be oh 33 gosh. because I'm like, is something bad going to happen? Am I going to die? Like I'm not taking it as literally as I'm going to be abducted, yeah. but I thought maybe I'll die. And, you know, 33 is also the year in which Christ dies. Yes. So 33, and by the way, I'm born, I'm March 3rd, 3-3. So I'm really scared. I'm 3-3, born sometime around 3 in the morning, terrified as I'm about to be 3-3. Oh, my Because it's like 3-3-3-3-3-3-3-3. We love that. As it is approaching, <clears throat> now I'm 33 years old. Okay, I'm approaching 34. Nothing has happened. All of a sudden, I have this dream that, the alien ships have arrived. Oh my They're God. over a city. They're over like New York and everyone is frantic. It's chaos. It's almost stereotypical. It's like a movie. Like, like Independence um, Day. Independence Day, <laughs> just like that. Yeah. Um, but the, the mother ships have arrived. Um, all of a sudden the scene changes and I am in an airport. Normal adults are just walking around with briefcases. They're, they don't even notice. And all of a sudden I turn to... I'm younger. I feel like I'm 12 or 13. Like in the dream. a child. Yes. And all of a sudden I see, well, I hear a voice on the intercom at the airport and it says, 
It's the aliens speaking through the intercom airport. And they say, we are only interested in the children. Then I turn and I see a girl who's my age in the dream. So we're both like 12. Mm -hmm. She looks like a 12-year-old girl, but she has big, enormous lips, big, enormous eyes. And she is for sure an alien. And she is staring at me in a way where I'm, I'm so seduced and terrified at the same point. And she comes in for a kiss. Whoa. The second she kisses, I wake up. I look at my clock. It's three, three, three. What the fuck? I'm shaking and I just start crying. And Vivian was up painting. And I was like, I just had the dream. They've come. I'm 33 and the aliens have come. And they've just made contact. And then I had a handful of other alien dreams. But the one that I found the most profound was um, uh, a woman, an alien was in front of a huge audience, like at a concert. And it was communicating to everybody in the audience. But then the alien walked through the crowd and came to me and transformed into a woman's body, an old woman, and led me out of the back of the, of the stadium. And we went into like a little, sh a little um, convertible type ship. It almost looks like a bucket. And as we're approaching it, I realized I'm in the presence of consciousness so beyond human consciousness. So I say, oh my God, this is such an opportunity. And I say to the, I say, hey, 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 and the alien turns and he says, what happens when we die? And the alien said, we don't know that either. And I was just like, oh my God, they don't, they're not gods. They don't know everything. Anywho. <gasps> wow, so Philippe, those, that's amazing. <laughs> that's incredible. So anywho, now do you, um, you got to leave soon? What time is it? 11.40. Yeah, I do, unfortunately. Okay, well, in closing, yeah. can we go back, because you are so... Um, into the plant world. You're an herbalist and you went to school for plants. Maybe could we go talk about one more quickly, one more plant that is so inspiring to you, the the history and folklore yeah. about it, the how you use it, et cetera? How about sassafras? That's one of my favorites. Oh my gosh. Sassafras, I think of as one of like the emblems of the Appalachian folk experience because it's extremely important to, and has like really interesting pieces of lore from Indigenous, Black, and European use. And it's the first over-harvested plant from Appalachia. I read it is actually the first U.S. It's the first colonial export. You're right, it is. So they cut every the, tree. When the colonists showed up, it oh, was yeah. the first thing, well, long before tobacco. Yeah. It was the first thing they realized they could make an immense profit from and start sending back to Europe. You know why? Well, because they made tea. And they thought the wood was magic. Saloop, yes. No, like... No ship would sink if it was made from sassafras wood. Really? If you put sassafras wood in your chicken coop, they'll never get lice. If you stir soap with sassafras sticks, it, witches will not upset its setting process because soap has to cure. Um, there's so many, if you burn sassafras wood, all your horses and mules will die. There's so many magical beliefs about sassafras. I also know in the hoodoo, the black hoodoo tradition, yeah. that if you take a sassafras leaf or a little piece of root and you stick it in your wallet, it's a way to hold money. It'll bring you money. Also, if in the same community, in black Southern communities, if you wear chips of the root around your neck, uh, especially on children, it'll keep away illness and it will protect the children. And so, and in indigenous communities, it, sassafras root, you chew it up and you spit it out and you wipe your face with it after you've healed someone spiritually sick, because then their sick won't get on you. Hmm. Sassafras is an evil chaser. It chases away evil, and it's Spice Bush's sister, right? Because it's in the Laurel family. They're both Laurel AC family plants. 
aromatic woods, okay. and you boil them together to make that blood tonic that takes us back to the very beginning. Why am I called blood and spice bush? Um, it's one of the blood movers, which is emblematic of believing that the body is like a tree in Appalachian folk medicine, and our blood is the sap. And we do things to the body to move the blood to maintain health. And that is kind of the foundation of Appalachian folk medicine and um, folk hematology, basically, which Anthony Cavender has a fantastic article about. Um, he's an amazing Appalachian folk medicine writer and researcher from University of Tennessee. But um, Sassafras, there's a missive that was sent out called Good News Comes from the New World. And it's all about sassafras and how it's going to cure syphilis. <laughs> yes, which they called the French pox. Yeah, or the pox or the canker. Mm -hmm. And I had, I've been reading a book right now called The First Frontier. And while um, it was saying, this book was saying that while the Europeans brought countless devastating diseases to, from their point of view, the new world, um, you know, which wiped out all the, so many of the Native Americans, <clears throat> the one disease that went the other way around, they're saying it was syphilis. That but it was syphilis here, existed too. And they brought it back over. Yeah. And it became known as the French pox. And it, so I would love to add a little history Please. here if you don't mind. So, because oh, I've course. been so interested. So, you know, sassafras tea is like, a t you know, my elderly neighbors right now, deeply West Virginian, you know, my, the old lady, Marietta, she's like, I love sassafras tea. I love drinking it. So it's so much part of where mm -hmm. we live here. Yeah. Spring and so, tonic. Yeah. You take that root. You boil it or you simmer it for hours and hours. Mm -hmm. It turns super red. Mm -hmm. You mix in honey or sugar, and it is the most transcending root beer-like flavor you've ever it's tasted. Yummy, yeah. So um, it was brought back to Europe, especially it was brought back to Europe 1700s earlier. Mm -hmm. It became known as Saloop, which was a tea that was vended on the streets, yeah. especially London. And once um, it became a sensation, and once. Um, saloop, which was sassafras, milk, and sugar. Yep. Once that was became known that the Native Americans were curing the French pox syphilis with sassafras, it instantaneously became taboo because if you were dr seen drinking saloop, you yep. were saying, I've got syphilis. So all of a sudden, it went from being a European craze to being the drink of the, low cla the lower class. Yes. So saloop was around while the gentry and the people who were more affluent at that time would be seen at the hot chocolate or at the coffee stall, you would see the wagon coachmen, you would see prostitutes, you would see um, chimney boys, which is unbelievable chunk of history, which were literally child workers covered in soot, completely black, no shoes on, who would go down in everyone's London chimney and clear out the soot. So those were the folks it was the lower class who were the the saloop drinkers. So back to what we were saying at the beginning of this podcast, when I drink that tea, it's no longer a nice flavor. It is an entire universe of, story. of, of stories, history, folklore, magic. That's why I love my work. Whenever I'm having a hard time or like going through anything in my life, I'm always soothed by like that connection to story. It's a really great way to come back to center because it, I don't really matter. I'm just a, you know, like a person in a universe of people. And like my story might change, but yeah, I love thinking about like sassafras or spice bush or mayapple or, or something and just the steadfastness and the vastness of all the interconnected hands and people that came before to make those stories like that to me. 
it's like worth getting up in the morning for, you know? It's, it's daily yeah. magic. It's daily enchantment. It is. Well, thank you for this. <laughs> You're welcome. This has been incredible. Thank you. Would you like to um, Would you like to promote your book a little bit? <laughs> yeah, I wrote a book called Wild Witchcraft. And it's all over. Every, everyone says, where can I buy it? I'm like, just Google it. It's already for sale on the thrift stores and stuff because <laughs> it came out May 10th. So there's used copies for much cheaper. Um, but yeah, you can buy it at your local bookstore or... Uh, Amazon if you want or Barnes and Nobles and I have another book through Three Hands Press called Fever Tree Appalachian Folk Remedies Against Fever and I have lots of ebooks for five bucks a pop on my website if you want to support me directly um, but I appreciate your time and hearing me and if you ever read my book thanks for taking the time to read my words so and your future books to stay abreast of all that you just check you out on Instagram, follow yeah. you on Instagram. I'm very easy to contact on Instagram. You can also contact me through my website and I update both frequently. Incredible. Yeah. This has been so <laughs> awesome. This was so fun. Thank you. <laughs>